Well, should we go ahead and get started? All right. Well, this is your last one, huh? Can you believe it? And then summer vacation? For you, anyway. That's great. Well, thank you for letting me be here. And uh, it's really a, a joy to um, just get to be a part of what I know God's been doing in your group um, with you and through you. Um, I get to hear about it usually through the, the eyes of a, the one who's in the classroom over there. And uh, there's just lots of exciting things that she shares, that Kim talks about in regards to the kids and what she gets to see. And um, so it, as an elder um, overseeing women's ministry, I couldn't be more pleased with what I hear about this being accomplished in, in you ladies. And uh, it's really humbling and um, exciting and something to praise God for. So... Uh, we want to do that. But before we um, get into our lesson today, I want to say two things. First is this. I want to encourage you to think about doing um, Wellspring again. That um, there, and, and this is, we, we face the same dilemma with build. Um, most of the ways that we program things uh, as Christians, it's like, well, this is um, programmed in such a way that if you do it, why would you do it again? It's like first grade. You go to first grade, and it's not a cool thing to go back and do first grade again. Okay? Well, Build and Wellspring are not set up that way, even though much of the same material is presented again. Um, but I know that in, in, in what I do in Build, even though I use probably 80% of the same stuff I used the year before, it always comes out different, and I end up emphasizing things a little different because I gain uh, you know, each each group of guys is so different, and each group of women is so different each year that what comes out and what gets emphasized. Uh, this year in Build, for instance, um, we have a very difficult time getting to small groups because I've never had a group that is so interactive. I think there's 35 of the guys. There's the questions that come is just so amazing and good, and, and we meet for two and a half hours. So um, every group's just different, and um, it'll be different next year, even though they, you know, the ladies teaching may have 80% of the same material. Who knows? Um, but I just want to encourage you to do that. And it, we actually have, I think, scriptural encouragement to never feel like you, um, once you heard something, that you don't need to hear it again. Second Peter 1, verse 12, Peter says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And we just want to be diligent to put these things in front of you so that if you're on your own somewhere or walk away from this, never take it again, you'll be able to be diligent yourself to remind yourself of these things. Um, so I want to encourage you to think about Wellspring again. Um, let's talk about mentoring. Um, the women's ministry here at Grace Bible Church has a, a mentoring ministry. Uh, and there's two levels of, of the mentoring. One, obviously you need women mentoring other women. And then there's the I want to be mentored part of it, right? Let's talk about both of those for a second. Um, some of you may need to be really praying about uh, being a mentor for somebody else. 
and one of the first thoughts that may come to your mind is that you're not qualified to do that. And I would say, and I know the ladies would say too, that that's probably one of the first things you should look for that qualifies you to be a mentor is that you don't feel equipped for it. If you do feel overly confident about it, you probably shouldn't <laughs> uh, think about being a mentor. Because uh, you'll always have a sense that you, you haven't arrived. You're, as um, our beloved elder Tom always says, you're just one beggar helping another beggar find the bread. Okay? Um, so I want you to think about that and be praying about that. That um, I, I'm pretty sure there's probably another woman in this church that could really benefit from you. And there's a process by which we evaluate and, and do all that, and Chris can walk you through that and, and talk with you about that. So uh, it, please talk with Chris about that if you're interested um, or wondering if you should be interested. And um, on the other side of that is being mentored. Maybe um, this year's Wellspring um, revealed some things to you that you're really grateful to God that you've, it's been revealed to you, but you want to maybe have a, some more intensive kind of um, focus with that with somebody else outside of what you're getting here, um, you can certainly go to Chris and say, I, I think I'd like to consider being mentored. Um, and then you guys can really customize that to what fits best for your life. Okay? So I just want you to be aware of those things. Chris, anything you want to add to that? No? Jamie, anything? All right. Well, let's pray, shall we, ladies? And then we'll look at God's word. Let's do that. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Anytime your Bible is on our laps and we open it up, Lord, we um, should feel um, our need for you. Um, because we are stuck in this body of sin and we know that if we do not have your help, Lord, we will miss so many important things. Most of all, we run the risk of missing you when we open these and look at these words. And our intent this morning is what we've been focusing on all year with Discipline One. We want to come to the word of God so that we might see the God of the word. And so God, in all these different passages that we talk about this morning, Lord, would you please reveal yourself first of all and foremost? And then may we be changed in light of what we see. And so God, we humble ourselves before you. We put your word over us and we place ourselves under it. We want it to sit in judgment and evaluation of us. We do not sit in judgment or evaluation of your word. So God, please do a work in us, and um, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's talk about the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. That is the church that you ladies are plugged into. You're not plugged into a different church, and so it'd be good for you to understand what is driving this church um, in regards to its vision and its purpose. Um, we kind of have two, two uh, parallel parts of it. We have a, a vision, a biblical vision. And then we have a gospel purpose. And we need to, and both of those things are very, there's a lot of thought that went into why we word them that way and everything. So what I want to do is I want to start with number one, the biblical vision of God, and we'll just kind of talk about what we mean by that. Sometimes when you're explaining what you mean, it's best to explain what you don't mean by what you mean. And so I want to talk about that first in the biblical vision of God, that first bullet point there. What do we not mean by a vision? Um, We don't mean um, something that's subjective and unverifiable like a dream. Okay? Um, no one of the elders, no groups of the elders had a dream or a vision, and that's not what we mean by this. Um, we also don't even mean um, a, a, the type of vision that Daniel had or Zechariah had. Those are like Zechariah, the, the, the father of John the Baptist, when he was praying in the temple. 
Um, those dreams are different than any one of the dreams I've ever had or you have ever had because God actually inscripturated those visions. Those are verifiable in ways that my dream will never be or any of yours. So we're not talking about, when we talk about vision, we don't mean that kind of a vision. Um, so what do we mean by biblical vision? I want to emphasize first, well, I want to emphasize both of those words, biblical and vision. Um, on letter I under that second bullet point, um, it's like, um, what do we mean by this? We mean that the biblical vision is, is like a stained glass window and a lens. Okay? The Bible is like a stained glass window and it's like a lens through which you look. Okay? Um, a stained glass window is something you bring yourself before and you just look at it. You're not trying to look past it. You're just looking at what it reveals and what it displays. The Word of God is like that. We want to just come to it, to gaze at it, to set our sights, to direct our vision towards the stained glass window that is God's scripture. But we don't want to only do that. We also want to look through it into our world and see everything as the Bible sees. I want to see my heart as the Bible sees it. I want to see my marriage as the Bible sees it. I want to see my my parenting as the way that God sees it. I want to see ministry in the church the way God sees it. I want to see my neighbors in the world um, as God sees them. I want to look at the Bible and I want to look at the world the way the Bible looks at the world. Do you understand that? That's what we mean by a biblical vision. Um, and we're talking about all of the Bible here, both Testaments, not one Testament to the exclusion of another. Um, number two under that second bullet point, you could put this. You can write this phrase down, and it's going to sound funny at first. Controlling line of authority. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. This is um, number two under that second bullet point. Controlling line of authority. We want, in saying biblical vision, we're saying we want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority over everything. What we mean by that is we want texts from this book, passages from this book, to be the controlling line of authority for us that dictates what we do and what we don't do, what we think and what we don't think. Now let me contrast that for a moment to help you understand. Every Christian reads the Bible, and as a result of the conclusions they form in their minds, they form a collection of theological truths. You can't be alive and be a Christian and not do that. You read your Bible and you make theological conclusions about what God is like, what he does, what he doesn't do, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and how he saves and how he doesn't save. You read your Bible and you form a collection of theological ideas. Theolog theologians call that systems of theology. And different systems of theology have been formed by different Christians over the ages as they read their Bibles. Some Christians say, well, I would identify myself as a Reformed theology Christian. In other words, I've read my Bible and I, men over the ages have said this is what a Reformer's view you know, in breaking away from the Catholic Church with, with Luther and Calvin and the sorts. These are the theological conclusions I have drawn from the Bible. Others um, will, will label it a little differently and say, I'm a covenantal theologian. I see covenants everywhere in the Bible. And there's overlap between Reformed theology. In fact, a lot of times they're almost the same thing, but there are some differences at some points. 
And so some Christians say, oh, I'm, a, I'm a covenantal theologian. And another Christian group of Christians will say, well, when I read my Bible and the conclusions that I draw, I would say I'm, I'm fit more in a, in a classification like dispensational theology. Okay? And what we're saying is that happens. Everybody does that. You do that. You might not be totally in one camp. You might be overlapping in a couple places. But what we're saying is the controlling line of authority is in texts, in the Bible, not in systems of theology. Okay? Your theology is something you put in your open hand, your conclusions you've made about God. When you, every morning, and you get up and you come to this book, every night you come to this book, whenever it is you come to this book, at church, you bring all of your theology that you've ever formed and you hold it like this with an open hand and you say, now, word of God, speak. And if this theological idea that I have formed needs to be adjusted, adjust it, please. Controlling line of authority, not what's in my hand, but it's in the book. Now, um, if I come and I've got a white-knuckled grip on my system of theology because that's what I hold to, and I come to a passage and it actually is a hard one with my theology, I'm tempted because I've because of the kind of grip I have on my system of theology, I can make it become the controlling line of authority. And now what must adjust is Scripture. And every single one of us is guilty of that at one point, at one time or another. We, we, we have to be really careful of that. But we want to be aware. And what we're saying to help remind ourselves is a controlling line of authority is not in a system of theology. It's in the Bible. And therefore, the elders of our church... I think it's really hard to classify us because there's a points where we, yeah, we're very dispensational at points. Um, and at other points, we're very reformed in our theology in terms of the way historians have understood, his, you know, reformed theology. Um, we have lots of in common with, with covenantal theologians and there are places where we greatly disagree. What camp are we? I don't know. And you know what? I don't care, ultimately. What I want to be known as is somebody who has my anchor in Scripture and our controlling line of authority is in the Bible. And if the Bible, if taking a position, lands me in this camp one day, and then the next sentence I say lands me in this camp, and then a controlling line of authority in a passage lands me in the third camp, I'll be in all three. That's fine. I don't care. But um, that's why we don't present ourselves as a church. Of, we're a Reformed theology church, even though we have so much in agreement. And we also don't say, hey, we're the Disby church, the dispensational church in the, in the valley even though we have a lot in common with them. We have in our name Grace Bible Church because that's a reminder to us. We want to be about the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? Controlling line of authority. Um, it's a biblical vision of God, of God that we're looking at. Uh, first and most, we want to see, uh, in this third bullet point, uh, we want to see God. What if you open your Bible and you see, oh, creation? Oh my goodness, look at creation. And then you turn your pages and you read some more and you go, wow, Israel, an amazing thing. To go, look at that, amazing. Turn your page a little bit more, mosaic law, incredible. You turn your pages a little bit more and wow, look at all these covenants. These are amazing covenants. And you turn a little bit more and the church, this is amazing. And then turn your pages up to the end and the end, look how it's going to end. 
What if you read your Bible and you see all of those things, but you don't see the God of creation and the God of Israel and the God of Mosaic law and the God of the covenants and the God of the church and the God of the end? You missed it. Because all of those things serve in the Bible to reveal the God of those things. And so this is discipline one of what we're talking about in regards to wellspring, that you shepherd your heart to come to the word of God to get the God of the word. It's a biblical vision of God. We're reminding ourselves that the first thing that we need to set our sights on most of all when we have this book open is God. And we don't want to look at it in a way that would make us get good stuff, good points, lots of truth, but not get the God of those things. So we're trying to summarize the message of the Bible through the three persons of the Godhead. That's why this biblical vision has three parts. The glory of God, the cross of Christ, and transformation of life by the Spirit. Because God has revealed himself in a Trinitarian way. And we want to present the vision, the the biblical message, in terms of these three persons of the Godhead. Okay, does that make sense? So let's try to... uh, chunk our way through each one of these, the glory of God. When we talk about the glory of God, we're primarily leaning towards the Father, okay? But not to the exclusion of the Son or the, 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 the Holy Spirit. We're not trying to say, well, Jesus doesn't have glory, and we're not trying to say, well, the Spirit doesn't have glory. Um, but we're leaning towards the Father, being glorified and, and being the God of glory. What does the word glory mean? The word glory in Scripture means weightiness, heavy. The Old Testament word is, is a, a word that you would use if you were carrying something that was heavy, you would use that word. And when they wanted to talk about God, they would use that word. He's heavy. He's weighty. He's too big to carry. He's impressive. And also associated with glory is the idea of radiant splendor, bright light, piercing light, so bright that and with such an amazing effect that Moses can be in the presence of that glory, come down the mountain and everybody goes, his face is glowing, right? It's a better peel than any woman could ever get. (laughs) Sorry, that wasn't in my notes. (laughs) Yeah, that one doesn't work in Bill. I've been waiting all year for that one. (laughs) That's too funny. All right, so there's glory. Uh, God's glory is his weightiness. It's, it's, it's his weightiness that's expressed through his brilliant radiance, okay? Uh, there's a sense in which God, this is the way he communicates himself. God has told us that no man has seen God and lived. No man can see God and live. We are not in a condition right now in which we can take on his fullness of who he is and survive it. So what does he do to reveal himself? At certain points in redemptive history, he communicated himself through his radiant glory, his weightiness. The best Old Testament passage on this, well, it's not the best. It's one of the best. I think it's the best. Exodus 33. Uh, Moses is up on the mountain, and he says, show me your glory. It's an amazing, interesting time because they have just done the whole golden calf thing in, in chapter 32. And then in chapter 33, God says, fine, go. You go into the land. I'll send my angel out in front of you. He'll wipe out all the nations, but I'm not going with you. If I go with you, I'm going to destroy you. And Moses says, whoa, these are not my people. These are your people. 
And how is it that we are going to be perceived to be any different than anybody else unless you go with us? What makes Israel different than the Canaanites? God. God. That's what makes him different. And if you don't go with us, God, we have no hope. Show me your glory. I want to know you. And God, in his kindness, did what the best that he could give to Moses. Uh, you know, over by where I'm at, Moses, there's this cleft in a rock. I want you to go stand in it. And when I come by, I'm going to put my hand over you because you can't take in what I am and live. But I'll take my hand away as I pass by and what's left, the afterglow, the afterburn, you can see that. Um, that's God revealing himself. Isaiah's vision in, uh, in, in, the, in heaven where he cries out, holy, 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 what the angels do or the seraphim, the cherubim there. Um, that's what's being revealed, just glory. Now, um, the, the two passages, we won't look at these, but I'll, I'll, you can draw lines of connection. The Exodus 33 goes with um, Luke 9, 28 to 36. And, and the interesting thing is, in, in Exodus 33, God is on a mountain with, with Moses, and there's glory everywhere. In Luke 9, Jesus takes th- uh, a couple of his uh, uh, disciples up onto a mountain, and guess who shows up? Moses and Elijah, that's the law and the prophets represented through these two, in glory. And Jesus' face is changed, and there's radiance coming out of him, brilliant radiance, splendor coming out from him. And so that's not an accident. That's a correlation. That's God in progressive revelation, progressively revealing through Scripture that the glory that Moses saw and dealt with in the Old Testament is none other than Jesus. Okay? And so much so did God want Jesus to stand out that when Peter said, hey, you know what, let me build three little tents here. One for each of you because I'm a good Jew and this is the law and the prophets right here and that is high. And I have a very high view of Jesus. He's as high. And God says, it's not high enough. The other two go away. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is higher than the representatives of scripture. He's bigger than scripture. He's bigger than the prophets. He's the God of glory in the Old Testament. The other two passages that go together, I don't have Isaiah 6 written there in the Old Testament teaching, but pair Isaiah 6 and John 12, 37 to 41. John tells us in his little editorial comment there that um, Isaiah saw his glory. And the his he's talking about is Jesus. So John is telling us that the one of glory and holiness that Isaiah saw was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay? Now, what does this mean practically speaking? The glory of God. Um, it's this. Position yourself to drink in the glory of God in Scripture before you ever go try to glorify God. Open the Bible and drink in the glory of God in Scripture before you go glorify God. Let that be your motivation to glorify God. If I, I, would, I would suggest to you that if you go try to glorify God without a steady diet of taking in the glory of God in Scripture, that glorifying of God you do will not be the best that it could be. In fact, it may be very anemic. Drink in the glory of God. Open your Bible to see the glory of God. 
and watch what that does to your glorifying of God. Let's talk about the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. And let's talk about Christ's death related to God's glory. This is awesome. I love the Bible just so good. God is great in the Bible. The glory of God is tied inseparably to the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's a picture of it you see in the Old Testament. God is taking Israel out into the wilderness, and he is on a mountain, and his presence is enveloping the mountain. The mountain is perpetually on fire, but it's not burning up, and it is quaking all of the times, and he says, everybody stand back. And then he reveals to Moses on that mountain, I want you to build for me a tent. That's right, a tent. Right now I'm enveloping this mountain, but I want you to build me a tent. And I want that tent to be in the middle of all of your tents. And I'm going to put my glory in that tent. Which is, I mean, how do you do that? How's a God of that magnitude enveloping a mountain confine his glory to a tent? I don't know, but he did. And then he tells Moses, in that tent, there's going to be blood everywhere substitutes over and over dying in the place of Israel. My glory in the tent and blood everywhere. Now, why did God do that? Because his plan all along is to be pointing towards and aiming towards and rushing towards the best blood from the foundation of the world that would be slain from his lamb and his glory is inseparable from the cross. So you can't talk about the cross of Jesus Christ without talking about a God of great glory. And if you're going to talk about a God of great glory, you're eventually going to get to the cross. They're inseparable. Sometimes, again, it's helpful to clarify what we don't mean. Um, Let me give you two things that we don't mean. First, we don't mean a Christless cross. We have actually been accused at points of Uh, talking about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, as if we have looked at the cross and we don't really care if Jesus is on it. That's not what we mean, okay? What what good is a cross, a Roman... Look, thousands, perhaps millions of men died on Roman crosses. It matters which man is on the cross. That's the cross we're talking about. It's Christ's cross. Secondly, the other thing that we're not saying is we're not trying to diminish the importance of the empty tomb or the resurrection. The resurrection is key. But um, there's only one man who was resurrected, and it was the man who was on the cross, the only cross that mattered, (laughs) because of the only man that died on it, the uniqueness of the man who died on it. And so we're not trying to diminish the the resurrection of Jesus either, but um, we're emphasizing the cross of Christ. There's an Old Testament type that points to this cross work of Jesus Christ. It's The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, you can read that and and read through it and see that the word atonement is used 15 times. Um, A key um, collection of words that go together with atonement, you can write down these three theological terms that go together. Are you ready? Here's your theological lesson for the day. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. P-E-N-A-L, right? I would spell substitutionary for you, but I'd get it wrong. I'm kidding. Um, atonement. Now, we have words that have penal in it. Give me one of our words that has that word in it. Penalize, penalty, right? That's what's the idea. There's a penalty. There is a penalty that must be paid. 
What does substitute have to do with that? That penalty can only, in God's mind, and in God's plan, be paid by a substitute. What does sacrifice mean? Shed blood. The substitute, to pay that penalty, must shed his blood. Right? That is the gospel. Um, There are other elements and components to the gospel, but those three things right there, if you fudge on any one of them, you lose the gospel as revealed in scripture. And so atonement is God doing that. It's taking care of the penalty through the means of a substitute who shed his blood and now we can be at one with God. Atonement. Let's go to Hebrews 9. I want you to see this in Hebrews 9. There's a good passage to explain it. Hebrews 9, 22 and then verses 24 to 26. Hebrews 9, verse 22. The writer there says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. See, there's the sacrifice offering forgiveness from the penalty. Verse 24, specifically, who are we talking about? Well, Christ. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, like the one that Moses made, Uh, which was a mere copy of the true one, but Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Just focus on that for a little bit, okay? He's in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's atonement. Um, A couple of other key words that go along with this, theological terms, are you ready? Expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Very important term. You don't have to use these the first time you're sharing the gospel with anybody. You don't have to use it the second time. You don't have to use them at all. As long as you understand it, expiation means removing sin and guilt. Taking away guilt, taking away sin. That's the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Two goats, one gets sacrificed in the tent. The other one, they pray the sins of the people on that goat and they scare that goat out into the wilderness, presumably to go die on its own. Why? God is saying, I'm going to do a removing of sin someday that this this picture is now. Wait till you see it. I'm going to expiate that way. Propitiation is the other term that's important. Propitiation. Okay? That is satisfaction of God's wrath. Satisfying God's wrath. And that is what Jesus does. And Hebrews 9 is helpful in that. He puts away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that is the cross of Jesus. What does this mean, practically speaking? I have two passages there for you to consider. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. And Galatians 6, 14 to 15. Practically speaking, 1 Corinthians 2 is all about, look, you don't have any other message but this one. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, Paul says. There's no other message you have for anybody than this message. This is the message, right? So practically speaking, uh, speak about Christ. Look at Galatians 6. Let's take a peek at that one together. Galatians 6, verse 14. 
practically speaking, just take some time each day and boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what counts. Being made into a new creation. That's what counts. Okay, so look, you have nothing else to talk about than the cross. And just take some time and boast in the cross each day. And that leads us right into the transformation of life by the Spirit because his whole role is to bring about transformation, a new creation in you. The role of the Spirit is to actually take the work of Jesus, his penalty-paying work as a substitute through his sacrificial blood. It's the Holy Spirit's job to take that and apply it to the life of the one that God is saving. That's his job. He applies the cross to the one that he is saving. Um, And when the Spirit of God does that, you do not get a really tiny salvation. You get this massive salvation. It's a massive salvation. It's not merely described as fire insurance. I no longer am going to hell. Is that true? Absolutely. Should we diminish that? Never. But if that is all we present salvation as, do you want to go to hell? No, I don't. Believe Jesus. Great, you're saved. Boy, I don't have to go to hell anymore. Is that what salvation is? Oh, it's a little bigger than that. It is also a new creation. Through the satisfaction of God's wrath, through the taking away of guilt, through the shed blood of a substitute, we are made into new creatures in Christ. Brand new. New desires that come. And the Spirit of God does two things. Number one, he births you again. He regenerates you. Right? We need to understand regeneration rightly. He he regenerates you. But I would also add another word with that. I would add sanctification. And by that I mean progressive, the ongoing process of sanctification. The Spirit loves to do these two things. He causes you to be born again. Now, how many of you remember the, the day that you were born? Oh, we don't need it. It is, we, we, we had nothing to do with that day ourselves. <laughs> Something amazing happened to us. And God determines to talk about salvation in those kinds of terms. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. There was only, uh, there was a set of fingerprints that was not on your birth. and It was not your fingerprints. Other people's fingerprints were all over your physical birth. Okay? And in your salvation with God, there's only one set of fingerprints on you and it is not yours. It is God. Okay, And the Spirit is the one who helps apply that to you. Um, so you get born again and you look at your, your new creation that you are and you see one set of fingerprints. And now the Spirit says, let's go for a walk. And the event ushers in a walk. And in that walk, as you walk, the Spirit says, pick that up. Put that down. Say this, don't say that. Do this, don't do that. And you pick those things up and you put them on and you walk. Your sanctification process has two sets of fingerprints on it. God's and yours. But that is very unlike your regeneration, which has only one set of fingerprints on it, God's. But the regeneration takes place so that 
a walk can come. A walk will not begin unless you are born again. Does that make sense? Okay. And the Holy Spirit is the one who, this is his main role. The Bible reveals his main role as this. I grew up around a bunch of Christians who wanted to give me the main idea that of the role of the Spirit of God was that I speak in tongues. And that I understand all the gifts. Does the Spirit give gifts to the body? Yes. Should we diminish that? Never. But if that's all you focus on, you have missed some really important things. He causes us to be born again, and he empowers us to live a holy life as he gives us gifts to go about. So you want to make sure that you notice, I mean, what we're saying with this is that when we're thinking about the Spirit of God, we're thinking about life transformation. We want to emphasize that. We want to put the accent on that. Okay? You have some passages there, New Testament-wise. Old Testament anticipated this, where the God would put uh, his laws on, on the hearts of, of those in the New Covenant, New Testament, being born again, Titus 3, 2 Corinthians 5, sanctification process, Romans 8, and Galatians 3, etc., now, what does this mean, practically speaking? Um, if there is a group of, if we're, if we're um, the kind of Christians that we are, we are probably at points going to diminish the Spirit of God more than we will the Son of God or the Father. Um, and what I want to say to us, and what I'm grateful for our, our biblical vision is, is this is a way to help us make sure that we don't forget the Spirit of God, especially his role in transforming our lives. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to be more mindful in your prayer life of the Spirit of God. Plead with God for fullness of the Spirit. Why? So that you'll speak in tongues? <laughs> no, plead for fullness of the Spirit in your life. Plead to, to God for that so that you might walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And, and talk to God. Please, God, gift me to serve you in the body, okay, and beyond the body. So plead for fullness. That Practically speaking, be aware of, the, of your need for the Spirit of God. Um, because he is often, I think, in our kinds of evangelical camp that we're in, he's often forgotten or diminished. All right, now that's the first layer, a biblical vision of God. Let's talk next about the gospel purpose in Christ. What do we mean by gospel purpose? Um, what we're doing here is we're, we're recognizing our place in redemptive history. Guess what? We are not contemporaries of Abraham. And God's purpose that he gave to Abraham to sojourn in the land, to kind of wander throughout it and pitch a tent every once in a while and move, that's not our purpose. And our purpose is not Israel's purpose. We have not been picked by God to bring judgment on the nations around us. We don't participate in that purpose of God in Israel. We find ourselves uniquely as the church participating in his purpose for us. And that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Okay? So we're talking about the gospel in that sense. Okay? Um, Jesus, as he proclaimed the gospel, he had three activities that seemed to have an overlapping um, relationship with one another. They complemented one another, and they are the three things, drawing in, building up, and sending out. Now tell me this. 
How is drawing in, building up, and sending out, how are those things, ideas, different than the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and the transformation of life? How, do, how are they different? What do you see? What observations can you make? Very good. Excellent. The first, on the biblical vision, we want to set our sights on God. We just want to soak him in, in his Trinitarian fullness. He's a God of glory. He's a, he's a God of the cross. He's a God of, of a changed life, Father, Son, and Spirit. We just want to, we need to focus on that. But that doesn't mean we will become a stagnant people, static, not moving. That is to usher us into a very active life where we must be active on the basis of what we saw and drank in in scripture. And that means we should be people active in drawing in, active in building up, active in being sent out and sending out, okay? So let's talk about those three things. Drawing in, here's a blank for you to fill in. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. We've already talked about that a little bit, okay? And by, we're talking about it being his saving work. We're not talking about figuring out how to get more people to come to church. And we're not talking about figuring out how to get more people to come to whatever event we might want to do. Um, that may be a good thing, as it all depends on how good the thing is, that you're, what you're doing. We're talking about drawing in in the sense of being saved. Um, so drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. John 6, 44 and verse 65, that's two places where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it has first been granted him from the Father. We're talking about that kind of sovereign drawing in. Okay? Um, we're not satisfied with people attending our stuff we do until when? They are drawn in to Jesus Christ in, in the gospel, to salvation. Okay? Now, uh, the second blank for you to fill in there. Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. This is the main magnet that God has. He does not have another magnet that draws people to himself in, in a saving way. He only has one. It's this one. It's Christ crucified. Jesus says in John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, Paul talks about the cross in 1 Corinthians 1 and chapter 2. Um, Jesus crucified is God's main object of attraction. Okay? So, Practically speaking, what does that mean? Um, I gave a little bit, a hint to you in, in the parentheses there. Use what the Holy Spirit loves to convert sinners. What, use the magnet. Use the magnet. Don't come up with a different magnet. There is no other magnet. And so often we, we, we I don't know why, but we, well, it's just our nature. We, 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 we gravitate towards other things and we prop them up. And when an unbeliever gets attracted to it, we can sometimes think because they came to the thing that I propped up, they must be interested in Jesus crucified for their penalty to satisfy the wrath of God in their place. And I, what I'm saying is you've got to be very careful to not assume that what you invited them to, to look at, equals penal substitutionary sacrifice. Because if you put up in front of them fun things that you like to do together and they accept it would be wrong for you to think, you know, I think God's really working in them. Because the only way you know God's really working in them is if they are being drawn with the cross of Christ. I'm not saying don't be friends with them, don't go to movies with them, don't 
go to the park with the other your your friends or I'm not saying don't do those things. Do those things, but make sure those things are full of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. If they reject you because you just hung out with them and you befriended them for a year and then they all of a sudden they, they don't want to hang out with you anymore, you have no idea why they really rejected you. In fact, Jamie, isn't it your testimony to that? Hanging out with Christians? Have you, has she shared that with you? And the gospel not being there. See, so just make it plain. Just, just whatever the Spirit of God loves to use, place that out in front of people. And we know what he loves to use. Christ crucified. If they accept, why, you just made it really clear. If you, if you lay out, there's a penalty. Your penalty must be paid. You can't pay it. A substitute must pay it. He gave his life and his blood was shed. And God, whose wrath was angry towards you, has now been satisfied. And they go, I want to hear more. That's a little more clear than, hey, you know what? We've been like hanging out for a couple weeks and we really have a good time together. You don't know why they're hanging out with you. Get to the bottom of things with the gospel. Okay? Building up. Um, we need to understand what our place in terms of being built up is all about in relationship to the body of Christ. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Don't worry, we're going to finish on time even, I think. Ephesians 4. Look what Paul says in verse 11. He says, And he, this is Jesus, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. We think those are foundational gifts given. um, And they were given for a reason for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. You see, you as a saint need to be um, equipped in such a way so that you can do the work. You must be built up. You must be equipped, okay? Now, what Paul does in verses uh, 12, all the way down to the beginning of verse 16, is he then moves on to talk about the body. Until we attain a, to become a mature man, we got to be built up like this. We can't be like children who are carried away in this way, in this really immature way. We need to be this mature man, this body that is whole. Now look how verse 16 ends. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. So what he's focusing on here is the only way that the body is going to grow is if each individual part within it is properly working like it's supposed to do because God put in each one of those connections where one individual bumps up against another one, he puts supply in that. That's the whole idea here. In every connection of supply, each God somehow decided to put a power supply between your personal life connecting with another in the body. And the only way the body grows is if your lives connect. So here's the challenge, practically speaking. We have almost no difficulty understanding that a Christian can be built up and be built up and learn and learn and do great things. And whether or not they're in church, eh, I can, you know, people, Christians can grow, you know, without the church. Really? Is that what this says? Is that why Christ shed his blood was so that a Christian could... Now look, if you want to get technical, take the gospel to a foreign place where it's never been preached before. One person comes to Christ, nobody else does. That person lives their whole life 
on their own before God. Does that person go to heaven? Does that person get built up? Of course. Is that God's main intent? Never. Thief on the cross didn't have a whole lot of people to fellowship with and to connect his life to. He's in paradise, enjoying it as much today as the first hour he got in. But the main idea expressed through here is that your life, you personally, ladies, you must be built up, but your life must be connected to others. Must be. That's the way that God sees it. So what I want to encourage you to do, practically speaking, is don't take the focus off building yourself up. But maybe add more focus on I must be connected with others. And so maybe this even ties more back into the mentoring thing. Put your life next to somebody. In, you you got to be in a small group, right? You have to be involved in people's lives um, to whatever degree you can be. Okay? Sending out, lastly. And to understand sending out, let's talk about how the three are related, drawing in, building up, and sending out. Um, it is easy to gravitate towards one that you feel maybe just more equipped towards, that just is more of who you are. And um, what we're saying is, in having these three, is we don't want to miss any of them to the exclusion of, uh, by focusing on one, we don't want to um, diminish others. Some, um, some churches are, are really good at drawing in, and that's their whole focus, is they, they love to bring the gospel, and they think about that. It's constantly on their mind. They program to that end. They focus on it. They focus on it. And maybe they don't do as good a job of really taking care of the people once they come and maybe even respond to the gospel. Some churches are on the um, other end of, of it. Let's talk about sending out. Sending out is everything. Missions to the end of the earth is everything. And it doesn't really matter what kind of a Christian you are. Just go. And there hasn't been as much thought about, well, what happened to them? Are, are they the type of person who's reliable in the message that they would give um, because they're so focused on sending out. And other churches can be, let's just build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, and we're not, we're just because we just like building up, and it's just really fun to study and study and study and study. Um, and what we're trying to say with drawing in, building up, and sending out is this helps us to not default into one over the others if we pay attention to it. Um, and so we're going to try to focus on building up. And listen, we're going to focus on building up. And the way that we're focusing on drawing in is not in a traditional way. Your elders cannot program a better program than the way your life is already set up. You live six days a week where you live outside of Sunday. And you bump into the same people all the time. You have relationship connections possible better than any program we could set up and say, hey, all you Christians, come over here, help this program, and we'll invite a bunch of strangers to it that we don't know, and they'll come. And I'm not poo-pooing that, saying that's bad. Do that if you want. Do that. But it's a pretty ingenious plan that God has for you, that you would gather one day a week and scatter six to where you live. And the point is, is take advantage of that. Be faithful where God has you, right? In your neighborhood, in your, first off, in, with your little ones, right? In your home, in the, in the, in the big kid you live with, who's called your husband. Um, be faithful there with the gospel, right? Be faithful at work. Be faithful at school, wherever you find yourself. Focus on that. Um, 
All right, God, in terms of sending out, God has always been a sending God. Um, I have a whole bunch of passages there for you. Exodus 3 is about Moses. God says, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah overhears the Godhead speaking about what are we going to do. And Isaiah says, oh, on the basis of what I've seen, just being cleansed of my sin, send me. This is Isaiah being sent. Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah is sent by God to Israel to bring his message to them. Same thing with Ezekiel. The same thing with John the Baptist in John 1. John was sent. In fact, even Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. That's one of the ways that Jesus loved to refer to himself, especially in the Gospel of John. He who the Father sent, blah, blah, blah. That would be the way he talked and, and taught. And he's talking about himself. In fact, the word send or sent is used in the Gospel of John about 50 times. Just read through the Gospel of John and circle it every time you find it. Write it in your margin. Copy it down. In fact, even the Holy Spirit is said to be sent by God the Father and, and Jesus. Okay, so God is all about sending. He is a sending God. Okay? The Father sends, the Son is sent, the Spirit is sent. When he saves you, what do you think is on his mind? He's one thing, but you're, you're not going to be that way? That's not going to have a dimension in your life? Or is that for those people who sit over in that section over there? Count them all right now. Those are the sent ones. And I'm, you know, I, I don't have that gift. Well, um, actually, you know what? It's not about a gifting. It's about an identity. You have that identity. Um, Ephesians, or uh, Acts 1, 8. Um, and you shall be my, what? Witnesses. You shall receive power, and you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say, and you will go do witnessing. Witnesses go witness. It's true. But he says you will be something first. You are something. You are a witness. You are a sent one. So practically speaking, if you need to, you, you preach this to yourself. This is true. And if, But if you don't understand who you are, you're not going to do it very well. You're not going to live life very well that way. So preach to yourself, I am a sent one. I am a sent one. I am a sent one. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, as I have been sent into the world, so I send you. Acts 1 is all about that. You can trace through Acts and look for the word witness, witness, witness. How many times did Peter say, and we are witnesses of these things? He doesn't say, and I'm witnessing to you about them right now. He says, we are witnesses. That's just who we are. We saw this. We drank this in from scripture and this is what I am. I testify of it. That's who you are. Practically speaking, you are first, I would think God would want you to see that you're sent into your household first, right? You are sent into your household. You are sent into the places that God has already positioned you, as we already talked about. It's an amazing strategy. Your home, your school, your neighborhood. You are sent also into the ministries of your church with the gospel. You are sent, maybe more formally, by your church out to the mission field. You need to think about that. Or church planting. Now, as we close, last thing. None of these three things make any sense if they are not focused on and driven by the gospel. That's why it's called a gospel 
purpose? What kind of drawing in will you accomplish if it's not with the gospel? And what kind of building up in the Christian life, what kind of edification will take place if you don't have the gospel at the center of it? Because it's a big gospel, remember? It's not just fire insurance. It's a gospel that leads you on a walk through a holy life with power, power of the Holy Spirit. And what good will you do if you go out without the gospel? And I'll even say this. What good is it if you go out ultimately and you feed the poor and you clothe the naked and you give the hungry something to eat, you take care of poverty, you give clean drinking water, and you did all of that and you weren't proclaiming the gospel. Now, you do not go to anybody and you say, I I see that you're starving and I'd be glad to give you food if you'll listen to what I'm about to say. Look, you feed them. You give a cup of cold water. You do it. Just give it. But if that's what you, all you're able to do, you walk away from that going, I have assurance that when I give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, that's special to Jesus. But you know what? There's a soul in that starving body. And what they're going to face, that soul's going to face in hell, apart from, God, apart from Jesus Christ, is far worse than being thirsty now. I want to bring the proclamation of the gospel too. The gospel is central in all of these three things. Okay? All right. Let's pray because I think the doors are about to break in. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Lord, you are a God of glory who um, went to a cross for the purpose of changing our lives. We are so grateful for that. And now I pray, Lord, that you be powerful. Um, because you have drawn us in through the cross of your Son, that we would be built up to be sent out by you. You are great and awesome. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.